Father, with that lovely image in our minds, we are so grateful for your son's insistence that we should call you Father and know ourselves to be your children forever, no matter how old we become. We are always your children. There is such a richness in that, Lord, and we thank you for it. And we would like you to speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible and you want to follow where I am, um, Luke 18 would be the place to turn to. I enjoyed that little film, didn't you? Very moving. Very moving. I'm in a happy position in my life, I suppose you come to it at some point, where I still have my father, and my son is also a father. So I'm in the middle. So my son now understands what it is to be a father, which is a great thing, and it enriches our relationship immensely. And I still have my father, who'll be 90 next month, which is an age worth celebrating, isn't it? So we're going to have a celebration with the family. I think if we were all to get together... We'll be over 100 of us, but anyway, he's got six children, 12 grandchildren, 19 grandchildren and counting. There's still others on the way. So it'll be a nice big thing. But one of the images that comes to me when I think about my father, and I think of him often, and uh, he's a great guy, one of the images that I think about is his generosity. He's not a man who has much. Uh, he's not rich in, in what would normally be those terms, but his, his attitude has always been to me and to all his family, is if I have it and you need it, you can have it. I know if I were to go to my father at any point and say, Dad, I need, and he has the capacity to give it to me, he will give it to me without a question. And he doesn't have much. But I just love that about my father. Among other things that he is, he's a generous-hearted man, a warm-hearted man, whose delight is to share what he has with others. And I think that's a trait of our Father in heaven, don't you? It's something the Bible repeats again and again and again, that he is a Father who gave. When it wants to describe the love of God, it doesn't do so in academic terms, in, in vague images. It tells us that this is the love of God, that he gave his only Son. It describes him in generous terms as that way. And I want to look at one story of generosity, if you like, from Luke chapter 18. It's very easy, of course, for us if we have poor images of a human father, and some people do, to load those poor images onto our heavenly father and he becomes a person we'd rather not have close dealings with. Thank you very much. But that's the wrong way around, of course. All fathers should take their lead from our heavenly father take their lead from God himself. So it's always good to look at who God the Father is and then come back to ourselves. And we're going to look at one story of divine generosity that revolves around a question, wrapped around a question that Jesus asked someone. It's not the only time in the Bible that this has been a divine question. It's at least the third time, uh, in my counting anyway, you may find other instances, but this is one of those occasions, and it comes from Luke 18, verse 35. The question is, comes in 41, and the question is, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And that's coming in this story from Jesus. It came 
from God Almighty, the Father, when Solomon was about to be enthroned as king. And God said to him, what would you like me to do for you? What would you like me to give you? It also came in a discussion earlier on in the Gospels before this event when two of Jesus' disciples crassly said, we would like you to do whatever we ask. And he said, okay, what would you like me to do for you? And they asked, they gave a particular question. They didn't get their answer that they wanted. Or maybe they did, if you look at their long life. But this is to another man. And the question is, what do you want me to do for you? You can't simply take bits of the scripture and then apply it to yourself in some ordinary way. Because that's to do violence to scripture. But I do think it is possible for us to interpret this particular verse in this particular way. Because it's a generous invitation to a passerby. So I think we can take it. And if uh, my question for you this morning, and I don't want to hear answers here, it's for your reflection, is that if the Lord were to ask you that question today, what would be your answer? And I guess, first of all, you'd organise them in alphabetical order, then in numerical order, but eventually you have to settle down onto one, don't you? And I think as you pause and consider it, maybe over the day, maybe over the week, you'd cross out some of those questions and answers that came straight to mind and thinking, no, they're not the most important thing. And you'd eventually work your way through to the most important thing. So that's why these questions shouldn't be asked on the cuff. I shouldn't say to you now, what would your answer be? Because um, chances are I'm going to get what's at the top of your head, what the pressure point is. But it's not necessarily the most profound thing. And as you reflect on things, it's always worth asking that. As a church, that's what we were doing earlier on. What, Lord, do you want to tell us? And I suppose in some context you could say, well, the answer from the Lord could well include, among other things, his implant, well, what would you like me to do for you? Where do you see the greatest need? And he's not suggesting that our answer is going to be correct. But he does ask these questions, not because he needs the information, but it's an invitation. All the questions of God, and there are a number, and we're going to look at some over the next few months. They're all invitations, because God never needs the information, does he? He's never looking for the information as if he didn't know it. He knows what the answers are. He just wants us to know what the answers are. He wants to hear it from us. That's why parents ask children questions, isn't it? They know the answer already, but they want to know what the child is thinking. So in verse 35, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Mark tells us that his name is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, in his account. And one of the commentators I read um, says you can interpret that as son of filth. Which is not an unpleasant name, really, isn't it? Son of filth. So Luke, perhaps, subtly and kindly, doesn't tell us his name is Bartimaeus. He just says he's a blind man, sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. You have to understand something here. Jesus is going into a city, and there's a crowd Never think of Jesus moving about just with his 12 
disciples. He does. But um, do you remember when we were looking at some point, sorry, when you've looked at some point in Luke chapter 1, when they're discussing the reality that Judas has now died and they need to find another one to take his place? The qualifications for that person, and it will be Matthias, are that he went in and out among us from the time of Jesus' baptism up to now, and he's a witness to the resurrection. So clearly, there were the 12 plus others going in and out among us. Understand that? Because Matthias had been there all the time. That was the qualification. And so was uh, the other guy, Barsabbas. So you've got other men as well. And then you've also got the ladies. Do you remember in Mark, it's the end of Mark's Gospel, that talks about the ladies being at the cross, of those ladies who had come from Galilee and have been with him and ministering to him out of their resources. So there's a gang of women, risky thing for them to do. But nonetheless, there was Jesus, his disciples, these other men, and also these women as well. But what happened in those days in Middle Eastern society was that if an important person was arriving at your town, you would go out to meet them as a town. And the distance you would go out of the town to meet them would be a mark of the respect in which you held them. In the 1960s, when President Nasser was president of Egypt, he visited a town, so my informant tells me, in southern Egypt, where he was held in such high esteem that the town folk walked out 10 miles to intercept him, then told all the drivers to turn off the cars of the presidential cavalcade. They tied ropes to the bumpers and pulled the cars, the 10 miles, back to the town. That's how high esteem he was held. So what's happened here is, as Jesus comes to Jericho, the town have come out to greet him. He's an important rabbi. And they've come out to greet him, have joined him, and are now walking back into the town. That information is worth you knowing about the second coming of Jesus. When Paul talks about us going to meet him in the air, that's the picture he has in mind. We, hide him, we hold him in such high regard that we go to meet him in order to gather with him and come back to earth with him. It's not about us being in heaven. It's not about us being in the sky. It's about us greeting him and bringing him back. That's the picture it comes from here. So that's why there's a crowd with Jesus. It's not because they simply were fed regularly by him. Some of that will be the case. But it's because they hold him in high esteem. And here's this man begging by the roadside. Now... Some of you may be used to scenarios where you're used to seeing beggars by the roadside, especially if you work in a city or something, and you're constantly confronted with this reality. Do you ignore the person and walk by, or do you make some move towards them and so forth? In Middle Eastern societies, beggars had a purpose. They provided a service. Because one of the obligations that all Middle Eastern folk in previous centuries understood was that everyone has an obligation to give to the poor because they're giving to God, a demonstration of generosity towards God. And beggars allowed you to do that. They gave you a ready-made opportunity to pass something to them 
so that you could fulfill this particular duty. So that traditional beggar would not say, excuse me, sir, you got a few coins for a cup of coffee? He wouldn't say. What he would say was, give to God. Give to God. That's what his cry would be in Middle Eastern society. Give to God. It's basically he's saying, my needs are not important. What I'm providing you with is a golden opportunity to fulfill one of the obligations to God. And since this is a public place, and if you give to me, you will be seen to be a generous, pious, good, honourable, compassionate person. So when someone in that society gives something to the beggar, the beggar doesn't say, thanks, and go back to talking with his dog. The beggar stands up and, and, and exalts you. He says something along the lines of, he stands up and in a loud voice proclaims the giver to be the most noble person he's ever met in all his life. Invokes God's grace and blessing upon the person, his family, his friends, his associates, his going out and his coming in and all sorts of other things. And very publicly declares your worth. It's worth a few coins to get that said about you in public, you see? So it's a little bit different from what we would expect this little picture to be, you see? Sometimes it's helpful to know these background information because it colours the picture. But of course, one of the problems is that to be a beggar and for people to respond to you, a visible handicap is necessary. So one arm would do it, one leg would probably do it. But being blind is a dead sure way of being able to provide for all your needs because nobody's going to pass you by. They're all going to respond to this very clear need. But because if you're a blind person with this disability, it means you have had no education, no training, no employment record, no marketable skill. Your only way of providing for yourself is your blindness. Do you get that? It's an important point of the story. The only possible way you can support yourself is through your blindness. Because if you are not blind, where you are at the moment, you have nothing to offer an employer of any kind. You've got no understanding, no education, no training, no employment skills. So, he hears this crowd go by and he asks what's happening and they told him, verse 37, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on him. He can't move, of course. He's blind. He just hears this kerfuffle going by. So he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The question is, this is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Now Luke writes his Gospel. They all write it in slightly different ways. I've probably told you this before, but I'll tell you it again. He, Luke tells his, writes his gospel as if it's one journey to Jerusalem after the initial first sort of chapters. He goes up when he's 12, doesn't he, when he's a child, and a few other times as 12. But come chapter 9, when he says to the disciples, now who do you say I am? And they say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, good, got it right. Then he's transfigured before them on the Mount of Transfiguration in Caesarea Philippi, right? From that point on, chapter 9, right through to the end of the book, Luke writes it as if it's just one journey that Jesus is making from Caesarea Philippi through to Jerusalem. 
He's got his eyes focused on the capital. He's got his eyes focused on what's going to happen to him there. It's one important journey. This is an important person on an important journey. The question we have to ask is, will this important person on this important journey stop and pay any attention to this beggar by the roadside? Will he? Well, those who led the way, verse 39, rebuked him and told him to be quiet. So the crowd didn't think that this beggar had any right to ask Jesus about anything. They tell him in no uncertain terms in Mark's gospel to shut up. Put a sock in it. Stop talking. Because Jesus is too important. And the business is too pressing to stop and have anything to do with you. So they tell him in no uncertain terms to be quiet. And they rebuke him. Clearly their expectation is that Jesus is not interested in roadside beggars of any kind. And of course one of the questions we ask ourselves is when someone like me offers you the opportunity to answer the question God is saying to you, what would you like to do for me? One of your questions is, well, would God even bother with me? In the words of that little song, does Jesus really hear me when I pray? Does he care? Of course he cares about important people. Why wouldn't he? One of the other occasions was Solomon. Well, of course God cares about Solomon because Solomon's king. Why wouldn't he invite him to ask? Such personages are important people. But me? Well, Bartimaeus will not be shut up. He won't be quietened. He shouts all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And what's Jesus' reply? He stops. You've got this wonderful entourage, Jesus at the front with his disciples and the other men and the women and the crowds who've come to sort of show him in, rather like our queen processing down the mall. this whole crowd of people, and there's not a thin blue line of policemen making sure no one jumps in front. But they're all coming down, processing back down. Jesus stops, and I always have, I have a whimsical sense of humour, I have the sort of the cartoon picture where they all bump into each other because he stops quite quiet. But anyway, he doesn't do it. He, he stops quiet, and they all stand back. And Jesus says, go and get him. And this is a rebuke to the crowd, because the crowd have said to him, shut up, keep quiet, don't keep talking. We're on too busy a, a journey. And Jesus says, oh no, we're not. You go. And get him. So far from being now the oppressors of this poor oppressed man, they're now the servants of the king who have to go and bring him over. So it's a kind of slap on the wrist. You didn't think I'd stop? Oh yes, I'll stop. And what's more, you can go and get him and bring him over here. And so they brought him near and Jesus asked him this beautiful question, what do you want me to do for you? Which had at the first point, seems tasteless and heartless. Well, he's blind and he's a beggar. It's pretty obvious what he wants, isn't it? Well, not if you remember what I just told you. Actually, his blindness is his only source of income. If you take that from him, he has no source of income. So it's not such a stupid question after all, is it? Because sometimes you think, well, that's a ridiculous thing for the Lord to say, and why would he have said it? And you want to move on, don't you? But it's not so daft. It's actually a stark question in which Jesus is testing him. This is a test for him. If healed, self-support will become very difficult, if not impossible. 
Indeed, we could say, isn't it in his own interest to remain blind? So the question Jesus is asking, are you prepared to accept the responsibilities and implications of healing, should I give it to you? What would you like me to do for you? Do you remember the chap in John 5 who's laying by the pool of Bethesda? And Jesus says to him, would you like to be healed? He doesn't answer the question, does he? That guy says, oh, nobody's here to help me into the pool. He doesn't even answer the question because that man is not ready for the implications of healing as the later story tells us. He's a bit of a wimp, a softy, a soggy kind of personality. He's not ready for it and he can't even answer the question. Whereas this man immediately does because he rises to the challenge of this. He wants to be healed and he wants the opportunity for his life to be transformed. And every time we answer this question of the Lord, what would you like me to do for you? It carries with it implications. It's not as if we have to fulfill conditions before God will answer our questions. Because that would be to put a price on grace, wouldn't it? And grace is grace because God gives it to us because he loves us. Not because we deserve it. We've been singing songs to that effect, hasn't it? So he gives to us because he is the God who loves and he loves us. It's not that he gives us conditions, but he wants us to know there are implications to his actions in our life. And the beggar rises to the challenge. And moving from the general, have mercy on me, a few coins would do it, you know, something else along those lines would do it, but he said, now sees his opportunity and rises to the challenge and spells out he wants, Lord, I want to see. I want to see. So perhaps he's been thinking this through. Maybe he's heard about Jesus because this seems to come hard on that initial encounter in this little occasion. He hasn't had much time to think. You've had quite a time to think now. And most of us would have, I guess, a little list of things that we would like the Lord to do for us. And we haven't yet got to the position where we say, but of all the things, Lord, this is the one thing that I would really like you to do. It's how parents do with children. If parents responded to every request from children, well, they know that what the children want with a burning desire today is naff tomorrow. Why would I have wanted that? And they've changed their minds. So wise parents wait, don't they? And when you find your child is still asking for the same thing two or three months down the road and maybe have made adjustments to their lifestyle in order to accommodate it, you think, ah, oh, maybe it is what they really want. So maybe we could get a piano for them because they really do want to learn to play. It wasn't just a passing phase. It will be worth it. You want to know what's really on their hearts. Do you know why I think sometimes God's answer doesn't come like that? Because I think he wants us to find out. He wants to find out from us whether we really, really want it. Or whether it was just one of those kind of, well, you know, I'll ask for this and if he gives me that, that's lovely. But if he doesn't, well, I'll stop asking. I think that's what's engaged in the ask and keep on asking and you will receive. Do you really want it? Do you really, really, really want it? What do you really, really, really want? And you keep asking and eventually you hone it down. Lord, this is the one thing of all things I would really like for you. Lord, I want to see, he replies, and Jesus gives him his request, fulfills, grants his request and commends his faith. Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. No, it hasn't. It wasn't his faith that healed him. It was the Lord who healed him, wasn't it? 
But isn't this wonderful of God to say something you did contributed to this process? Isn't it extraordinary? We know it wasn't his faith that did it. Jesus knows it wasn't his faith that did it. It was Jesus who did it in the power of the Spirit. But somehow he's gracious to say what you contributed matters to me. Do you remember the story in John 21? Bring some of the fish you have caught. You have caught? They didn't catch any, did they? Until he told them to put their net over one side of the... And then they caught some fish. And he says, you bring the fish you caught. So we bring what we can bring. You don't think it's much? It doesn't matter. Bring what you can bring. I recognise your faith. I see your faith. Because you see in me, says this man, says Jesus. You see in me the one who can bring about your healing. That's why you've asked for it. You see the work of God in my life. This is what I want to know. You know I have compassion on the poor, of which you're one. This is good. And you call me Lord and Master. This is good. He recognises this man's faith and encourages it because he wants him to grow in faith. Because it's not just about a healing, we know that. It's not just about this man getting his sight back. It's about this man's life being transformed and becoming a follower of Jesus. Literally, he becomes a follower of Jesus. Literally, he comes to praise Jesus there, which is what God is looking for. Of course, not everyone did that. Ten lepers, nine lepers got their healing and wandered off without a second thought and joined society and never thought of Jesus again or so we were meant to suppose there was no conditions there but what Jesus is looking for is people who rise to this opportunity that's why I think when God asked Solomon what would you like me to give you and Solomon said well who am I to run your this nation to be the leader of your people I need wisdom and God says good good Good. I was, I was hoping you were going to say that and not something like wealth and riches and power and all that nonsense. Because this is what you really want. And I think, if I can do so without being irreverent, I think God clapped his hand and saying, yes, I was hoping you were going to say that. Yes, you can have it. And you can have the other things too. But this is what I really want because he saw his task as being bigger than himself. You know why Jesus said no to James and John? Because they said, we want the most important places. And Jesus says, we're well, not mine to give. And you feel, he says, and if they were mine to give, I wouldn't have given to you anyway. Because you don't know what you're asking for, do you? And they were thinking selfishly. So he had to provoke them to think again. So his response to them was, think again on that. But when Bartimaeus, if that's his name, says, "I I want to see, Lord, then Jesus says, good, now you can see, you can come and follow me. And it's not just about human sight, it's about spiritual sight. So that's my question for you this morning. One I would invite you to mull over, perhaps today and in the coming days. Maybe even write it down and keep it in your pocket. And whenever you have a moment, just think, if that were the question the Lord were asking, what would I ask him? It may be different from what you would have asked 50 years ago or 20 years ago or even one year ago. Because life is different. What would you ask? What would you ask that recognises the fact that Jesus is Lord and that you're part of his kingdom? That we pray, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. So keeping those things in mind, what would be my prayer? What would be my desire? 
And as you as a church together reflect on what the Lord is saying and interpret these lovely visions he's giving you and think about how he wants you to be the people of God in this particular place, as you reflect on this sort of issue too, you say, Lord, what would really help us to be even more this generous-hearted people, this open-doored people where others can come and meet the Lord of glory? So I'm not going to ask you to tell me what you want now. I'm going to invite you to reflect on it and think on it and let God turn it over in your mind so you can come to the right reply. It will have implications and responsibilities and it will involve loving the Lord more. Let me pray. Our Father, you are a generous God who has, from the beginning, demonstrated your generosity in giving. There was no reason for you to create anything, and yet you created the earth and us on it, that we might enjoy you forever. When we sinned against you, you implemented a plan of salvation that you've seen through to the very end, so that in the coming of Jesus, that plan was brought in all its fullness, because you are a giving God who still wants us to enjoy you forever. And in this moment now, Lord, we know that you're still giving grace, looking for a positive response from people that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And when we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done, Lord, we know that that will be the best possible thing for us, as well as for you, to happen. So, Lord, I want to pray for my friends here that as we reflect upon this question what do you want me to do for you? We may have that spiritual ability, that discerning of spirits, to be able to respond in the best possible way, in the way that brings joy to your heart as we ask, Lord. You invite us to ask. You tell us to keep on asking. Well, this is a, an invitation to respond in a particular way. Help each of us, Lord, as we respond to you, to know we're asking the right thing and you will give it to us in all its fullness, that your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. For Jesus' sake, amen.